Um, welcome to Safe Haven. My name is Tyler. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are so glad that you have decided to worship with us this morning. Um, we find ourselves in our ongoing journey through the book of Genesis. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. It's a fun passage. Um, but before we dive into that, I want us to do a quick recap of Genesis 1 and 2 because we're going to trace a theme that we see clearly in the first two chapters of Genesis that I think is key to unlocking this text and really Scripture as a whole. So in the beginning, we see that God was created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that the earth was without form and it was void. So the first thing we see about this God is he is creator, okay? Um, and, and God is going to form and fill creation. And so if you remember, day one, he, he uh, made light. Day two, water and sky. Day three, land. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, creatures and man. And what I want you to see here is when he forms light, he separates light from darkness. When he forms a, he makes the water in the sky, he, he forms it by making these things. And by land, he forms land by separating the water from the land. So I want you to see something here. What is God doing? He's forming and he's filling. He's forming and he's filling. Do you see it? He's forming and he's filling. He's forming and he's filling. We're going to come back to that. Hang on to that. Um, but late in the sixth day, we see that God creates men and women and he forms them in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And interestingly, in verse 28, God blesses men and women and he tells them, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. And I want you to fill the earth and subdue it. And I want you to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Interesting language, right? Man's mandate sounds a lot like forming and filling. It's interesting because God tells us in verse 27 that I'm going to, let's make man in whose image? Our's image, in God's image. We were created in the Imago day. So men and women are supposed to fill this creation with anything that may bring glory to God as creator. So God made us a certain way for a certain reason to form and to fill the earth for his glory. That's key. So keep in mind here the relation to God and his creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Where's God with his creation? He's present with them, right? He's walking in their midst. He's, he's with them. And it's almost as if this created world in which this creation dwells is like a temple. Remember in the Old Testament, and we see this in the New Testament, the tabernacle and the temple. What was in the tabernacle and the temple? Who, what dwelled in the tabernacle and the temple? God's presence, right? And so then he creates man and he forms him from the dust of the earth and fills him with breath in his life. In life. And and man is created to be like a mirror in this temple as God's glory. It's like a slanted mirror as God's glory shines down on man. It's reflected back as an act of worship to the Lord. And God's majesty shines on man and he receives this glory back. And then God places Adam. This is interesting in chapter 2. God places this man, Adam, in a garden in Eden. Don't miss that in verse 15. And check this. So if the world is some sort of a temple where God's presence dwells, and God places this man, Adam, in this garden to work and to keep it. So if God takes Adam and he forms him and he fills him and he puts him in this garden to work it and to keep it, this working and this keeping almost sounds like Adam is some sort of what? A priest. Follow me. You're like, I don't know if I'm buying that, bro. I don't know. This is interesting. 
So this working and keeping language in Hebrew, these two verbs, working and keeping, abad and shabar, every time it is used in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, it is always, always, always used to describe the duty of the priest in the tabernacle or the temple. And so Adam is our first high priest. Follow with me. And there's so much more I want to say about this. I just don't have time. Go check out G.K. Bill's uh, The Temple and the Church's Mission. He's, he can tell you much better than I can. But anyway, the first, what I want you to see here, and it's key to Genesis 3, is Adam's role in the garden is not just to be a gardener, but a guardian. And so God is filling this created world with his presence and he sticks this man in the garden and gives him this job that priests are going to have to do later in the Holy of Holies. This is awesome. And so what do priests do? What do we learn that priests do? Well, we learn that priests offer sacrifices, but there's no need for sacrifice right now because there's no sin in the world. But God does give him an interesting charge about this food. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Adam, I want you to feel free to eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That one you cannot eat from. Do not eat of, those, do not eat of that tree. But any other tree is fair game. And this is important. Look in verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord commanded man. Adam received the direct instructions from the Lord. Only Adam. Eve's not even created yet. This is key. So God created man, he commanded man, and he instructed man alone to be the high priest, to not eat of the tree. And so, about to go into Genesis 3, if Eve learned not to eat of the tree, who would she have learned about it from? Adam, her husband, the first high priest. So this isn't to say that God doesn't love women, it's because he had a different role for them that Troy hit on last week. And we function best when we operate in the roles that we were created for. And so why were they not supposed to eat of this tree, that this, this knowledge of good and evil? Because they were, Adam was supposed to go to the Lord to be instructed as the high priest as to what is good and what is evil. Follow this. Eating of this tree symbolizes them attempting to place themselves over God by figuring out for themselves, which is the root of all human sin. Genesis chapter 3. Jump in with me. Verse 1 through 6. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So a few things that we learn about sin's entrance into creation and sin's entrance into our own lives. Um, So before I get there, though, I want to talk about this serpent. So we see this talking serpent. That's a that's a big red flag off the off the bat off the bat. Like so we have this big this talking serpent. We don't really actually know how he got here. The text doesn't tell us that. 
doesn't tell us how the serpent got there. Um, John Calvin wants to argue that Satan possessed the serpent and used him as a mouthpiece. I don't know. Either way, the serpent, we find nowhere in this text that this serpent is named Satan. Anywhere. To find out that this serpent is Satan, you need to go to the end of the story. In Revelation chapter 12, in verse 9, we see... Satan is unmasked as the serpent. Looking back on the creation narrative, he says, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And I don't have time this morning to go into it, but Revelation chapter 12 is a commentary on Genesis chapter 3, and it is fantastic. So dive into that this afternoon. Um, But anyways, here we see the first act of spiritual warfare happen to humanity. And so three things I think we can see about how sin enters. The first is this manipulating God's word. That's the first thing we see. Verse one, did God actually say, did you catch that? How subtle the enemy slips that in. This is how we see how sin enters and bursts divisions in our heart. It's by manipulating God's word. Sin is always, always, always church, an attack on God's word, always. Keep in mind the grace of creation that Adam and Eve have experienced up to this point were the result of what? God's word. He spoke all of these things. And now the Satan is trying to birth doubt in God's word in their minds. And so he, so he, Satan sows this false seed in Eve's mind to view God's authoritative word as subject to her judgment and not true as what it is. So he entices the woman with this. And when we sin, we are neglecting against the God who tells us what is good and right and warring against it. That's what sin is. Keep keep in mind the enemy, Satan, he is the master manipulator and deceiver. You will find this over and over again in Scripture. And he works it to his advantage. Remember, and Ezekiel tells us, in Satan's fall, he somehow convinced one-third of the angels who were in God's presence to try to unseat God from his throne. That story goes on. It didn't work out well for them. Um, They were cast out of God's presence. But he tries to subtly sow doubts in our minds about God's goodness, his word, the seriousness of sin. He doesn't come up to Adam and Eve like, hey guys, why don't you go eat of that tree over there and doom humanity and I'll pop some popcorn and watch you do it. It's going to be awesome. He doesn't do that. Satan is good at presenting sin to us like a, co- a chocolate-covered grenade, man. Like, we're like, man, that looks really good. I want to bite into that bad boy. And inside of it is a ticking time bomb waiting to blow up in our face. Every single time. But Eve takes the bait of the serpent to debate what God says. And then catch this in verse 3. She not only debates what God says, she adds to what God says. Verse 3, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Look back at Genesis 2.16. Does God ever tell them that they can't touch the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? No, he doesn't say that. He says you can't eat it. So he adds, she's adding to it. And so this, a lot of things flow in my mind. I think it's because the first high priest failed to instruct her in the law of the Lord as to why she did that because he's standing right there with her. Priestly function to guard her has already failed. And so Eve is listening to the deceiver and attempts to magnify God's strictness in this moment instead of relishing in his spoken goodness that he, she sees all around her. 
And so first thing we see is manipulating God's word. But not only that, we see that the enemy uses our entrance into sin by downplaying the seriousness of sin. Don't miss that in verse 4. You will not surely die. It's just some fruit. Just take a bite. It's not a big deal. This is a flat out contradiction of what the Lord God had told Adam. And this is how the enemy works, right? This is how the enemy works with us. Man, it's just one look at the website. It's just one flirty text with a coworker. It's just one fudge report. It's just one little white lie. It's just one little peek to cheat on the test. It's just one little, it's just one more piece of Southern L House cheesecake. But I'm serious. That's how he works. It's, Joel Beakey says it better than I can. There is no such thing as a little sin because there is no little God to sin against. I'll say that again. There is no such thing as a little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Jesus Christ was crushed on a bloody cross for one little white lie. He was crushed on the cross for one little peek at a website. He was crushed on a cross for one little flirty text message. God is serious about sin. Don't miss that. And then lastly, number three, the enemy entices us with deceptive promises. Verse four, you will not surely die. Verse five, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You see these promises? And this lie in this moment will reinterpret the entire created order that we've seen. And now the enemy pits Eve against her God and against her creator to entice her with glory. Man, that sounds vaguely familiar, right? Sounds vaguely familiar to Satan's story. He wanted to be God. He craved his glory. All these angels, they worship God all day and all night. He craves the glory. And what does Ezekiel tells us? He saw the unrighteousness in his heart, that he craved the glory of God. Also sounds vaguely familiar to another guy's temptation, Jesus. I'll give you all of this if you just bow down and worship me. Derek Kidner says this. He says, so the tempter... So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service into servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. All these things I will give to you, the pattern repeats in Christ's temptation and in ours. Do you see what the master deception uh, deceiver is doing? And so in this moment in verse 6, Eve listens to the, crea- the creature rather than the creator. And she dove in. And she saw that it was good for food. And, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And she desired the power that was in it to be wise. And this is what sin does. This is what sin does to all of us. It entices us with fulfillment and leaves us empty and dead. Every single time. There's a story of uh, how... 
old Alaskan herdsmen to protect their, their flock, what they would do is they would take um, sharp double-edged knives and they would, they would plant them deep into the ground to where they, they wouldn't move. And, and on these sharp double-edged knives, they would take some sort of meat like a chicken breast or something. They would soak it in blood. And as they soaked this meat in blood, they would actually take it and they would freeze it. And they'd have like this blood meat popsicle in a way. And then they would drive it down on this sharp double-edged knife. And so the bait would entice the wolf to come in. And so as the wolf would come in and he would start licking away at the, the blood popsicle, you know, in a way, it's disgusting imagery, I know, but hang with me. As he would start to lick it down, it, it would slowly start to melt down. It would numb his tongue. And as his, the, the numb tongue would slowly get down to the blade, it would start to cut the wolf's tongue. And the blood that he had been craving now turns into his own blood that he's eating. And he slowly bleeds out and dies. Man, that's, that sounds a lot like what sin does to us. We see it as enticing. It looks so good, man. We want it. We want it bad. We want it bad. And, and so we start to bite into it. We eat it. We devour it. We, we, we bite that, the fruit. We, we send the message. We, we fudge the report. It feels good. And then we become numb to it. It just becomes another thing. It's just a part of our story. It's just how we operate. And all along, it's slowly killing us the whole time. And so then Eve gives some to her husband who was with her. Don't miss that. Who was with her? And Adam has been there the whole time. The first high priest, instead of guarding his bride and instructing her into the ways of the Lord and warring against the enemy with God's word, buys into the garbage the entire time. And this leads to sin's consequence. Look with me in verse 7. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and then they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we see sin's consequences. But I want you to notice something. Notice in verse 7 when their eyes were open. Were their eyes open when Eve ate of the fruit? No. Their eyes were open when Adam ate of the fruit. Don't miss that detail. Why does all this hang and fall on Adam? Because he was the first high priest. He was the one who received the command from the Lord for them not to do that. It was his job to guard his wife from the lies. He has failed to instruct his wife in the law of the Lord. And so now she was deceived by the enemy and their eyes are opened. And in this moment, they realize their nakedness and all of the beauty go back to Genesis one and two, the forming and the filling. It's all becoming unraveled in their very presence. And so they, they notice that they're naked and they're embarrassed and they're, they're full of shame and they sow fig leaves to cover themselves in this moment. In our f- moment, we see our first parents 
trade freedom like we've never experienced before for fig leaves. And that's what sin does. It promises fulfillment and it leaves you with fig leaves every single time. So back to Adam. I want to follow this theme. So back to Adam. They heard the sound of God coming and they hid himself from his presence. And God in his grace called out in verse 9, where are you? You think God knew where they were? Yeah, he knew where they were. This shows God's kindness in drawing them out. And check this language. Check this. He says, where are you? He doesn't use the Hebrew word, the pronoun there for y'all. He doesn't say, where are y'all? He says, where are you? Singular. Verse 11. Who told you? Have you eaten? This is important. Because God's coming for Adam in this moment. Why? Because he failed in his priestly responsibility. And so, in verse 12, instead of taking the responsibility and owning up for his actions and failure of guarding his bride, he then shifts the blame to her. Keep in mind, we just saw that he was captivated by her glory, captivated by her beauty. And now in this moment, the creature that he was once mesmerized with, he now pits himself against her and uses her to defend his self. This is what sin does. The woman, and not only that, he shifts the blame to God. The woman you gave me. Don't we do this with our sin though? God, if you would just give me a spouse or if my spouse would just be better, I wouldn't have to look at the website. If my husband or wife were just a better spouse, I wouldn't have to send that text message. I wouldn't have to confide in that coworker. If my boss wasn't such a strict jerk, I wouldn't have to fudge the report. If my teacher wasn't so hard, I wouldn't have to cheat. We do the same. And then God goes to Eve and asks, what have you done? And her reply, the serpent deceived me. And in this moment, it's too late. The deceptor had deceived her. And we see this unraveling of this forming and this filling. Blamelessness gives way to shame. Joy in God's presence gives way to fear in God's presence. Do you see that? It's coming unwound. And then we see the curses. Look at me in verse 14, to the serpent first. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, serpent, above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so he says, cursed are you above all livestock. I'm just saying God doesn't like snakes. I'm just throwing it out there, you know. And that's why whenever I see them, I crush them with a shovel because it's biblical. I'm just saying. That might be a little bit of hermeneutical gymnastics, but I hate snakes. So, But that's not what I want you to see. But anyways, catch this. With Adam and Eve, God questioned them. What have you done, Eve? Where are you, Adam? No question is given to the serpent from God, only his sentence. Don't miss that. In verse 15, we see what theologians call the proto-evangelium, which is a fancy way to say the first glimpse of the gospel. 
This is where we see the first glimpse of the gospel. And interestingly, the first glimmer of gospel hope we see comes as a sentence passed on our enemy and not a direct promise to man. Derek Kidner says this, redemption is about God's rule as much as it is about man's need. In other words, God is king over our enemy. The enemy is subject to our God and our creator. One theologian put it this way, even the devil is God's devil. He submits to our creator. He is subject to our creator. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. Now let's look at the women, verse 16. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. And he shall rule over you. The forming and the filling become unraveled. The blessing of offspring forming and filling, multiply, fill the earth is now given way to pain and hurt. And I see this with my own wife, pregnant with her third kid. And she has thrown up at least a million times. No, no joke, at least a hundred times. No joke. And it's just like, it's never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. It's the result of the fall. And not only that, not only pain and childbearing, but this relational intimacy that we looked at last week that she had with her husband, Adam, this beautiful unity now gives way to marital strife. To love and to cherish now becomes to desire and to dominate. And so then we see the curse of Adam, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Don't miss this. Now he addresses Adam. Look at with me in verse 17. The fundamental flaw of Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. The fundamental flaw of Adam was that he listened to the voice of his wife. Why was this an issue? Why is this a big deal? Does God have an issue with women or something? Like, are they, does he believe they're stupid? Does he believe they're second-rate beings? Does, does, does God just not like them? What's, what's his deal? Of course not. The problem was because Eve was not the high priest. Eve wasn't the high priest. It wasn't her job to teach. It wasn't her job to guard. It wasn't her job to keep. It wasn't her job to serve. This is the fundamental failure of the charge the Lord placed on Adam's life. It's unraveling in this moment. Don't go to crazy town and think the Lord doesn't delight in using women for his glory. That's not where I'm getting at with this. The Bible is drenched with story after story of God using women of the faith for his glory. Just look at Esther. I mean, a million other ones. But what we see here is how this all got started is from Adam dismissing his original charge from the Lord to be the high priest. And so the ground that once flourished with ease, now to get provision, you have to get it through the blood and sweat, the blood of your hands and the sweat of your brow. This harmonious climate that once existed now gives way to natural disaster. Beautiful plants that once sprouted up, now you have to deal with allergies. Thanks, Adam. 
peaceful sea creatures that they once dwelled with. Now they'll bite your leg off, man. A shark will bite your leg off. Harmonious land creatures. Now we have mosquitoes. I'm just saying. But here's where I really want you to zone in. In Adam, all who once lived, now in Adam, all will die. Physical death. And look at verse 24. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So through Adam, we all once dwelled in God's presence, and now we're exiled from God's presence. This forming and filling has now become completely unraveled. And if the story ended there, it would be an utter tragedy because our first high priest has failed us. But God sends remedy. Let with me in verse 15 and verses 20 and 21. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 20, and the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them. So notice the pronoun here in verse 15. I want you, you need to catch this. So they'll put, there'll be enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The Hebrew for her offspring is singular. So there's this one offspring that is coming and he singular will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this offspring that's going to rewrite the narrative? That's going to bring back order and peace and, and bring back the forming and the filling that was once beautiful. Who is this offspring? In verse 20, we see man called his wife's name Eve. You know what Eve, Eve is Hebrew for? Life. This is awesome. Follow with me. Because she was the mother of all living. Eve knows this offspring of promise is supposed to come from her. And that's why in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, she exclaims with excitement. She says, now look at me in verse, chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam and Eve knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man or man child with the help of the Lord. She's looking back at the promise The curse of the serpent and the promise for humanity where us all going to be unwound and made right. That's what she's looking back to and she thinks Cain's the answer. But we know Cain's not the answer, right? The story goes on. Cain kills his brother, Abel, over what? Offerings to the Lord, which are also what? Priestly duties. But we, but we know it's not Cain because from Cain's line you get Lamech and that whole line is 50 shades of busted. It's all kind of messed up. And so, but we know in chapter 4, chapter 4, follow with me, this is good. Chapter 4 ends with the birth of another male seed, offspring, the birth of Seth. And we know that in Luke chapter 3 we go and find the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 58, we get the early genealogy of, of Jesus, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. 
This is good. What if I told you that Genesis 3.15 points us to a true and better high priest who in Hebrews 4 was... Who, who Hebrew 4 tells us is not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. What if I told you that there's a true and better high priest that in his temptation in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11, that he didn't see the Father's word as subjective, but he willingly submitted to it and warred against the enemy with it. What if I told you that there was a true and better high priest who entered into our brokenness out of his grace by the Father's will to be crushed, Isaiah 54, 10, and willingly laid his life down for us, John 10, 18, on a cross on the outskirts of Jerusalem. What if I told you that there was a true and better high priest who on the cross, who was crushed for us, and in the temple, the the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying through his life and through his death that there's a way for man to be made right with God and can enter back into his presence. What if I told you that there was a true and better high priest who willingly was clothed in our sin on the cross and endured death to bridge that gap between us and the father. And then in him, he clothes us in his righteousness and stands. And so we can stand blameless before the father. Second Corinthians 521. What if I told you that there is a true and better high priest who didn't stay dead in a grave? First Corinthians chapter 15, but he resurrected, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the enemy once and for all, sealing our hope in our life through him. What if I told you that there was a better, true and better high priest who trusting in his work on our behalf that the Lord in his grace takes our heart of stone and forms in us a heart of flesh and then fills it with his spirit to cause us to walk in his statues and walk in his ways. Regeneration sounds a lot like forming and filling, doesn't it? What if, I, what if I told you that there's a true and better high priest who will one day return for his bride? And will usher her back into a garden where there is no more death, where there is no more sin, where there is no more curse, where there is no more enemy. And the original mirror that was once fractured at the fall will be restored and we will reflect the glory of God and pour it back out in praise to him forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the true and better high priest, safe haven, who rewrites our narrative. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 18 through 21, Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, Jesus. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, Adam, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, Jesus. So now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the words of John Calvin, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam is to destroy. That's good news, church. So where Adam failed to lead his bride in the ways of the Lord and then blame shifts, shifts the blame to her. Jesus instructs his bride in the ways of righteousness and willingly took his bride's blame in her, for her disobedience on his cross. Where Adam is clothed in shame and walks by his bride out of God's presence, Jesus clothes his bride in 
his righteousness and ushers us back into God's presence where Adam was swallowed up in death. Death was swallowed up in Christ. And when in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. That's the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Don't miss it. Man, come back up here before I keep going. And so my question for you, church, is which high priest do you find yourself in? Which high priest do you find yourself in? God only sees you in one of the two high priests. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And in Adam, you will die physical death. We will all die physical death unless Jesus comes back and, and saves us from it. But we will all taste death unless that happens. So in Adam, we'll all die a physical death. But if you stay in Adam, the scripture tells us you will also die a spiritual death. And all the forming and filling that Jesus brings back will all still be unraveled in your demise in Adam. Or do you rest in the last Adam? who leads us and ushers us into eternal life through his work on our behalf. Which Adam are you in? That is the most foundational question that you will deal with. And so, believer, man, what does this drive us to? It drives us to scream of the excellencies of our true and better high priest who was crushed for us and ushers us back into the created order. Whereas Genesis 1 and 2 was was the beauty of what creation is and God dwelling with his people. It's bookended with God, Jesus ushering us back into this beautiful presence in Genesis 3 through Revelation 20 is Jesus bringing us back and ushering us back. That's the whole narrative of the scriptures. An unbeliever. Man, repent of your sin. Don't buy into the lie. Repent of your sin and rest in the finished work of the last Adam on your behalf. Today could be the day of salvation. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, as I was studying this text this week, I was faced with my own brokenness. I'm so grossly inadequate to proclaim your excellencies. But as the old hymn goes, I'm prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God that I love. That's all our story. But Jesus, true and better high priest, would you take our hearts? Would you take and seal them and seal them for your courts above? I pray all these things in his name.